Well, for those of you that maybe new, may not know who I am, I'm the pastoral intern here, and so I'm happy to see you all this morning and happy to be here and share God's word with all of us as we explore and try to understand what the Lord is going to speak to us. Uh, a couple of announcements just before we begin and dive into God's word. Firstly is we realized that if you haven't been coming too frequent or too often, if you've just started coming to Hillside, you may not know that you can let us know about prayer requests. We are a community that prays. We believe in the power of prayer. We believe in the one who hears our prayers and that he answers prayers. And so if you have a prayer request, whether that's something that is going on in your life that you need petition for, prayer for, intercession for, or if there is something that you're thankful about, you're thankful for how God has provided in a certain way. You can let us know about that. We would love to hear. And the way that you can do that is you can go on the website, myhillside.ca. You can fill out an online form there. Or just in the the foyer, the entrance, we have one of these connect card looking things, except this one says, how can we pray? And we would love to hear prayer requests, and we would love to stand by you in that, stand by you and pray with you and support you in that way. Secondly, is Scott mentioned that there's another Alpha course coming up in January. And so we're telling you very much in advance, so you can be thinking about this and praying about this. For those of you that don't know, Alpha is a series of video discussions and discussions that we have as a group, um, an introduction to the Christian faith, a chance to ask questions and explore what Christians believe and why they believe it. And so be praying about who you can invite. Be praying that the Spirit will be at work in their lives. And so, again, in the foyer, we have small jars of rocks. And one thing that we do here is we we take a few of these, and each of those represent a person that we are praying for, that that we're praying that the Lord will save, will open a door so that um, they come to faith. And so I encourage you to do that. Let me pray before we open up the Word. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to meet together and to worship alongside one another. We thank you for that. And even as Ken was speaking, we're reminded that many of our brothers and sisters over the world don't have that privilege, that they have to meet in secret, that um, they have to meet just a few of them together at a time. And so we are thankful that we can meet all together here. And we ask that we would remember that blessing. And we ask that as we open your word, you would reveal your truth to us. We recognize that this is your word, that it's inspired by you. It's unlike anything else that we're going to read. You are speaking to us through this book, Lord. And so I ask that anything that comes forth from my mouth will be truth, will be accurate. And anything that is not, Lord, will be forgotten. And so we pray that you would here that you would speak to us, and we thank you in advance that we know that you will through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why don't you start by opening with me to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to read from there in a few minutes. If you've been away for a few weeks, or if you've just started attending here, then we're so thankful that you're with us. But you may not know that the series that we're currently going through is called The Way of Jesus, The Way of Jesus. So we're about, we're in our fifth week into this, this eight-week series so far, 
And what this came out of is a, a discipleship framework that was put together by our denomination, the EMCC. And what it explores, the question that it's trying to answer is what does a disciple, a follower of Jesus look like? Practically speaking, what does a follower of Jesus look like? And so we're going through this series. We had an introduction, and then there are these seven markers, these seven sayings that go along with this series that we're looking at one by one, week by week. And so how these markers start, they start his, referring to Jesus, his. And so, for instance, the first one we looked at was his life, his life, the life of Jesus. And then the saying that goes along with this, that we can read together, whether we have been a believer for a day or a month or a year or decades, then we can say together these sayings that go along with these markers. So here's the life. I have begun following Jesus and I'm depending on the spirit of Jesus in my journey. And so what this series is, hopefully, its intention is, those of you that, that own cars and, and are responsible for maintaining them, you'll know that if, if a warning light comes on, you kind of want to check that out. And you want to service the car regularly. And you want to get the car inspected to make sure everything is, is going on okay there. And what the way of Jesus really, one of the things that is helpful about it is it gives us language to be able to say, Am I a disciple in the way that Jesus wants me to be? Am I following Jesus in the way that he wants me to be following him? And so it's helpful for us to reflect and to evaluate how we are doing as followers of Jesus. And the way that these markers and these sayings are phrased is they're ongoing. You notice the language. I have begun following Jesus. It's, it's ongoing. It's continuous. And that's why we can say it if we've been a believer for a day or a month or a year or decades. And they're comprehensive. They're broad. They encompass all aspect of discipleship over these seven weeks that we're going through these seven statements. And so, so far, we have gone through three. His life, I've begun following Jesus, and I'm depending on the spirit of Jesus in my journey. And his mission, I am being sent by Jesus to bless others and invite them to follow him. And last week, we had the blessing of inviting Lynn Dietz, the regional minister for the EMCC, and he explored with us his character. I am learning to be like Jesus in my attitudes, behavior, and character. And so this week, we come to the fourth of these seven sayings, his love love of Jesus. I am learning to love God and love others. And so what this morning is about is, it's about answering the questions, what does it mean to love God and love others? Why should I love God and love others? How am I, how do I love God and love others? And so why don't we go no further without reading words from Scripture? Please stand with me in recognition that this is from the Lord. We don't stand because this physical book is special in any way. We stand because of the one who inspired this. 
Paul, the uh, early church leader writing to Timothy, wrote that these words, scripture is inspired. It's breathed out from God. Elsewhere it talks about the word of the Lord cutting to the heart. And so there is power behind these words because there is power in the one that inspired them. Let's read. Starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two of the religious political groups in first century Israel. They were some of the main opponents to Jesus. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Go ahead and take a seat. And so in this passage, what we really see is there are two types of love described. Two types of love that we are to have. Love for God and love for others. Uh, That's why in the saying that I just read, it says, I am learning to love God and love others. These two groups. And notice that there's an order to this. Uh, Jesus himself says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. Just so we're clear. We're not on equal footing. First and foremost, we are to love the Lord with everything that we have. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's stitching together, pulling together two passages from the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures, from the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And so the first, love the Lord your God, is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it's part of what's called the Shema, which means to hear or to listen. And this is an integral part of Jewish prayer, how it begins. Hear, O Israel, listen, O Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So that's the first part that Jesus is is pulling from. He's saying, this is the first and the great commandment, the Shema. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with everything you have. And then the second that he pulls together, love your neighbor as yourself. It's easy to think that this was something that Jesus came up with in his earthly ministry. Actually, it goes back further than that. He's pulling this from the Old Testament scriptures as well. Let no one ever tell you that the Old Testament is boring. And where does it come from? Of all places. Leviticus. Ah, you will know. 
Leviticus, that stumbling block for those of you trying to read through the Bible in one year. Whenever you start a Bible reading plan, where do you eventually get to and slow down and stop? It's Leviticus. And in the heart of Leviticus, we find this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so how does Jesus end as he talks to the lawyer. On these two commandments depend all of the law and of the prophets. In the Talmud, which is really a a commentary, a a discussion of rabbis as they discuss the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law. And so in this commentary, the Talmud, then the rabbis agree that there's 613 laws in the Torah, 613. And that's not even counting the prophets and everything that's contained in the rest of the Old Testament. And so out of all of these 313 laws, Jesus doesn't say the most important one is, remember, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk, which is a command in the Old Testament. You'd be surprised what's in it. No, out of all of these laws, out of all of Scripture, Jesus pulls these two golden threads together. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so clearly, we're commanded to love God and to love others. If you needed any convincing of that, it's fairly clear. But what does that actually look like? What does it look like to love others? What does love look like? And this is where it gets complicated, as I'm sure you know. Everyone has an opinion on what love looks like. Naturally, it's not something that you can stay neutral on. Every culture has an opinion on what love looks like. Every political party has an opinion on what love looks like. All of us do. And yet most people, many people, don't agree on what love looks like. Most people don't disagree that we should love. You know, it's understood, to love is a good thing. But what is loving is the thing that's highly contested and and debated. We disagree on what love looks like. And so, before we get onto what love is, I wonder if it's helpful to look at three lies that we see in our culture about what love is. The reason for this is that incorrect perspectives on love have crept in, and they have throughout all of history. From Genesis 3, when we see the serpent come to Eve and then say, did God really say you shouldn't eat from the tree? And Eve says, yes, he he did put a boundary in place. And the serpent responds, well, that's because he knows that you'll become like him. The, the serpent is saying that love has no boundaries. Love wouldn't restrict you. The serpent is redefining the one who is love and what is love. So the first thing is that incorrect perspectives on what love is have crept in. They've crept into all cultures, and they look different in different cultures. 
The second is sometimes it's easier to define something by what it's not saying, also by what it's saying. It's easier to define, define something by what it's not as well as what it is. So if I say to you, I'm thinking of a shape. It's not square, it's not triangle, it's not a rectangle. It's a dodecahedron. No, uh, uh, oh, what? No, I thought that would work. I'm joking. I tested that out with my wife last night just to make sure she, she got circle, and she did, so well done, all of you. And so there's, there can be some help in defining what something is not to show, bring more clarity as to what it is. But then I have two cautions as well uh, before we look at these lies, which is I'm addressing from my experience and from what I see. I know that we are very culturally diverse here, but I'm looking at addressing lies about love that are prevalent in Western culture. And it's not comprehensive, but it's general. And maybe whether you've grown up in a different culture or even this culture, then this may not be your experience. And actually, to, to look at it from the other perspective would be more helpful for you. And so I think this will be very helpful, but I offer that caution before we begin. The second is, these aren't equally about our love for God and our love for others. Others correspond more or maybe more completely about our love for God than our love for others or vice versa. So why don't we begin with, with lie number one that I believe that culture, uh, that we see in culture. And it's that love is a feeling. Love is a feeling. In the book of Second Samuel, we get this dark, sickening story. And it's about two of King David's children. It's about one of his sons, Amnon, and one of his daughters, Tamar. And how this story goes is we encounter Amnon, and it says that he was so tormented because he loved his half-sister, that he made himself ill. And so we read that he's sick. He's sick because of how much he's tormented himself with this. And then we meet his so-called friend, and his friend comes in, and he says, Amnon, what is wrong with you? What could be wrong with you that you're this sick, that you are this depressed, down, ill? And he explains why, and he says, but I can't do anything about it. And yet his friend plants an, an evil seed and says, well, pretend that you're sick and then get the king to bring your sister in and she can wait on you and she can serve you. And so Amnon follows that advice. And the end result is that during this time, he then overpowers her and he rapes her. And she pleads no, but it says, but he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. He loved her? Because that's what he was saying. That is not love. He mistook desire for love. At its most extreme 
at its most extreme, love is a feeling, ends up with love is desire. If I have desire, well, that is love. And he gives people license. I wonder if most of the, or one of the most dangerous teachings throughout history has been those four words, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart, which is really language for follow your feelings, follow your desires, follow what your, your gut's telling you. Not something external, not the word of God, not what you morally know to be correct. Follow your heart, your feelings. It's for good reason that we read in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. And don't we know this to be true of ourselves? Don't we know when we really stop to reflect and think that is true? C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author of the 20th century wrote, love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. It's not an affectionate feeling. It's a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good, even if that conflicts with our desires. And so we see two dangers with this lie. Love is a feeling. The first is that if I have feelings, then that must be love. And I wonder how many adulterous relationships have started with that thinking. The second is if I have no feelings, then there is no love. And I wonder how many marriages could have been saved if that lie was thrown away. It's true that affectionate feelings often accompany love, but not always. And isn't that true of our love for God? The seasons of life? There are times where we may feel distant from God, but it's a good thing that he remains constant, and He remains with us. And so, yes, we should have an affection for God in general, but we know the realities of life, and we know that sometimes we don't desire God. We're sinful human beings, but that doesn't mean that we give up. That means that we choose to continue loving Him just as He chose and chooses to continue loving us despite everything. The second lie that I think we see is that love never offends. It's interesting that in Scripture, we read different situations, different verses, that where certain actions are described as loving. And so one of these is rebuking someone, challenging someone. It's not something that we naturally think of as, as loving. To confront someone, but that's their life. Who am I to do that? Or, well, it's their decision. Uh, I, I'm not one to say anything. 
I, I don't have that responsibility. And yet we do have that responsibility if we love the friends, the family that the Lord places in our lives, one of the loving actions that we can have is to, to challenge others and also to be challenged by them. One of the great blessings in my life is that I have people who love me dearly and are willing to say that they think I'm wrong or to tell me that I'm wrong and to steer me away from sin. Another action that is described as loving is sharing the gospel. And yet, Paul also speaks about the offense of the cross in Galatians 5. Elsewhere, he talks about the cross being a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. There is an offense to the gospel. The fact is, when we share the gospel, then People have to come face to face with the reality of their own sinfulness. That's the bad news for which there is good news for. And so if love never offends, then I suppose we could never share the gospel. However, there's also the flip side to this that I'm sure you all know about. And that doesn't mean that you may have experienced in your life people who are arrogant. I have a little thing in my notes saying, P.S., don't be a jerk. This is kind of my, my caveat to this. <laughs> so love can offend, and I think that it's important that we say that this is one of the lies the culture has taught us. This doesn't mean that we are offensive people. No, it just means that when that's the most loving thing to do, then we don't step away from it. I believe that we can be tenderly lovingly offensive in some situations. Lie number three, I think, is that love is never painful. That love is never painful. How many of you have met my, my dear little boy, Everett? Number of you. So he is uh, 15 months now, just about to turn 15 months. And um, I think we, we may have hit the terrible twos a little bit early. And so... He is, he's a sweetheart, he's such a cutie, big brown eyes, adorable, and I'm sure many of you, if you meet him after the service, will say, what, like, no, he's amazing. Those of you that are parents may know that sometimes in public, children can seem a, a bit, I don't know, uh, on better behavior than, than they can be at home. And so we're getting to the point where we have to, we're having to start to discipline him, because he understands what he's meant to do and not meant to do, and so as loving parents, then we're having to start to discipline him because we want him to grow into someone who loves others and treats them well. And this is one of the ways that God shows love to us. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? Discipline is actually a form of love. Yeah, I wonder how many sermons we've heard on that topic. I wonder how often we think about that, that, that love can cause pain for a greater good because of the sinful world that we live in. 
But then the flip side to this, and, and unfortunately there's almost certainly some of you that have experienced this. Um, when I was helping to lead an Alpha course a few years ago, one of the, the guys that was attending was reading his Bible just before the, the session started, and he turned to this passage and he was reading it, and he said, and he didn't, he, he said it genuinely, he, he was genuinely just interested, he wasn't saying it judgmentally or anything, but he said, oh, so when my father would, would beat me and, and abuse me, then, then is this the kind of like discipline that God is like? No, 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 not at all. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? The loved person's ultimate good. The Lord doesn't discipline out of anger, out of harshness, because he can't restrain himself, but out of love for our good. In the same way that a good father disciplines his son. Because we are sinful human beings, pain will inevitably be experienced when we love by both people, ourselves. C.S. Lewis also wrote, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. Living in community, as we do, isn't always easy. I can't promise you that you're not going to get hurt by the church. Many people have been. Many people will be. Fact is, because the church is made up of of sinful human beings who are being conformed more into the image of God, but are still sinful and make mistakes nonetheless, such as I do. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. And yet, to love is the way of Jesus. Even within friendships, <laughs> honesty, honesty can be painful. And so let's proceed to, three. those are three lies about love, so what is love? When I was writing this, the song came into my mind, and I'm sorry because it's probably going to be stuck in the rest of your heads for the rest of the day, but what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. There's a reason that I'm not on the worship team and I didn't sing, and that's why. <laughs> so what does love look like? Many of you may be familiar with the love passage in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul writes this beautiful passage which is often read at weddings. And what it says in verses 4 to 7 Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. The big idea that that we're seeing here is Love is self-sacrificial. Love is self-sacrificial. We lose something when we love. To go through this passage, we lose our ego. 
There's no envy or boasting in love. We lose the fulfillment of our desires. Love doesn't insist on its own way. We lose our apathy. Love rejoices at truth. We lose our escape route. Love bears all things. Sticks through thick and thin. So we lose things, but we also give something away as well. We give our time. Love is patient. We give of our resources. Love is kind. And yet we gain love, which is worth more than all of this. The few verses before what we just read. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So we lose, but we gain something far greater. So practically speaking, how do we love others? Timothy Keller, a pastor in in New York, reflecting on spiritual friendship, draws together some verses about what it means, what it looks like to love one another. We admit wrongs and ask forgiveness. We seek reconciliation. We're not content to leave broken relationships as they are, as much as it depends on us. We bear others' burdens. We walk with those who struggle. We carry their burden with them. Friends are to lovingly point out their friend's sins if he or she is blind to them, as we looked at. We're there through thick and through thin, constant presence. We share of what we have, and we encourage others. This is a glimpse of what it looks like to love others as Jesus loves them. And then how do we love God? First, by giving him his rightful, primary position in our lives. That's first and foremost. Remember what we read as Jesus spoke to the lawyer. This is the first and the great commandment. So that there are no idols. God is alone. He is supreme. He is the only thing that we worship. We sacrifice our time and our energy and our resources. We give back to God as he has given to us. We recognize that he has given us all the good things that we have. We love God by obeying his commands. Several times throughout the New Testament, we read this. Jesus says in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If your friend said that to you, you'd be a bit confused and and wary, rightly so. But Jesus is so much more than our friend. He's our Lord and our Savior as well. 
And we can also love God by enjoying him. Lynn Dietz, who was here last week, read to us the first point of what's called the Westminster Short Catechism. I have a, a question and answer for discipleship for the Christian faith. And it begins, what is man's chief end? What's your purpose in life? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Do you ever think about that enjoying God is a form of worship to Him? It is a form of loving Him? Just as any other relationship we have, is when you enjoy someone's presence, then that's a way of, of honoring that relationship. And so as we draw to an end, I just want to pick up on one last thing. And there'll be a, an image that I saw just yesterday, actually. And it says the, the verse is John chapter 13, 34. I do a bit of graphic design in my spare time, so I'm quite a fan of that image. Don't know if you like art, but I'm a bit of a fan. But there's one thing about that is that it says love one another, which is true. It's completely true. That's what the verse says, love one another. And yet the verse also says a couple of other things. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Notice that. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. What does it tell us? It tells us that We are to love others in the same way that Jesus has loved them and loved us. And it also tells us that Jesus has loved us first. The fact is that our command to love is rooted in, founded in God's love for us. John writes, we love because he first loved us. That's where all of this flows out of. It's not, okay, just got this command to do, got to love God, try harder. No, that's not it at all. Instead, it's recognizing the love that he's shown us, and our natural response to that is love for him. A couple of authors, Gunther and Link, write, it is God's love creating the new realities amongst mankind, which is itself the basis and motivation for love between people. And I would add, not just for love between people, but also our love for God. God's love is our basis and motivation for loving him him back. Just as we lose when we love We've also been given everything already. So where is God's love supremely seen? It's seen in the cross. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross shows us that love is willing to suffer. The Son of God suffered on our behalf. It shows us that love is faithful. It shows us that love is independent of what the other person does. The cross teaches us what love is. It's the best description and definition of love. That Jesus himself would suffer and die for us. 
while we were completely undeserving so that we might have a way to be forgiven and saved from hell, from eternal death, from our sin. That's the love that God has shown us. The bad news is that we are sinners deserving God's wrath. But the good news is that he loves us and he has taken that away. The cross shows us most clearly and purely what love looks like. I quoted C.S. Lewis earlier saying, to love a tool is to be vulnerable. This is what the full, the, the full passage says. To quote a tool is to be vulnerable. To love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love at all is to be vulnerable. To love others is to be vulnerable. It's not simple or easy, but we can be vulnerable because he was vulnerable. We can be vulnerable to the pain of love because Jesus was vulnerable to the pain of love. That is the way of Jesus, and that is his love. Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of your love. Something that we can, a a child can grasp, and yet something that we haven't even scratched the surface of after decades of exploring. Your love is without height, without width, without depth. It's endless, it's infinite, it's eternal. Your love will sustain us until the end of the age and then on into eternity. Your love never fails. As we read 1 Corinthians 13, we're reminded that this is the picture of the love that you have given us. Love is patient and kind, and the love that you showed us and show us is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, and you do not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude, and you were not and are not and will not be arrogant or rude. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and you endured the cross for us. So we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. And I pray here that if anyone has not put their faith in you, that you would reveal themselves to you. That they would know that there is hope in the name of Jesus. That they would know that every wrong they have done 
that you are willing to forgive them, that through your blood on the cross, they can be forgiven and may spend eternity with you. And so we ask, Lord, that we would love in the same way that you have loved us, that we would love you back, that with everything in our being, that we would love you back. And we ask that we would love others as ourselves, others who you have created in your image, others who are vulnerable, who can't speak for themselves. We ask that we would, that we would show them the love of Christ. And so we thank you and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.